Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Our podcasts are made possible in part by a grant from the Thomas Job Fund. Hello, this is James, and welcome to the podcast. And this week we are joined by Sarah Fay. Sarah is an author, an adjunct professor at Northwestern University, a freelance writer at the New York Times and elsewhere, a certified mental health peer recovery support specialist, and a mental health keynote speaker who's spoken to audiences across the country about recovery from mental illness. We have previously spoken with Sarah about her book Pathological, A True Story of Six Misdiagnoses, which told the story of her 25 years spent in the mental health system. For her follow-up work, Cured a Memoir, Sarah writes about her recovery from mental illness. She says, During the 25 years I spent in the mental health system, not one clinician mentioned the word recovery. I ended up one of those hopeless cases, diagnosed with bipolar disorder, chronically suicidal and unable to live independently. Yet I recovered, not remission, full recovery. In this interview, we discuss why cured is such a seldom-used word in psychiatry, we talk about the power of finding hope, the peer recovery movement, and much more. Sarah, welcome. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me today for the Mad in America podcast. I'm delighted that we can get to talk. Thank you so much for having me back. And as I said, I'm just so grateful to be on here and be able to talk about mental health recovery. We're here today to talk about your latest book, which is entitled Cured, a memoir. And it's kind of a sequel to your 2022 book, Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses. And listeners might recall that you were on the podcast last year, actually, with Alan Horwitz and Robert Whittaker to talk a little bit about that book, but also about other things, the DSM and other things besides. And, um, you know, I have to say, having read the book, it's really, really refreshing and powerful to read a celebration of mental health recovery. And it struck me while reading it how rare it is that we do discuss recovery in, in mental health. So to get us underway, could you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to write the book following on from Pathological? Well, Pathological, the experience of publicizing it was so fascinating because it really is, you know, it's got three strands. So it is a memoir. It's my story of 25 years in the mental health system. I received six different diagnoses, ended up one of those hopeless cases, quote unquote, and was, you know, chronically suicidal. I can no longer live independently. Um, And so that's one strand of the book. And then another strand is really taking the DSM to task. And mainly because once I found out, there are different ways to take a diagnosis. And I used my diagnoses against myself, so I saw them only negatively. But once I learned the flimsiness of DSM diagnoses and that they aren't scientifically valid and are rarely reliable, it changed things for me. And I was really angry. Um, And so... That's one strand, the second strand of the book. And then the third strand is about punctuation. No one really understands that, but it's my love of punctuation. And and basically the reason why I wrote that part was just because I learned more and more about punctuation the longer I was in the mental health system. And it was like my way of holding on was teaching and reading and writing. So that's where that comes in. But because I had taken the DSM to task, we really expected my editor um, at HarperCollins and my publicist and my agent even, we thought, oh, we're going to get so much pushback from psychiatry. And we were just ready for it. 
And we got none. I mean, it was almost eerie. And it was kind of more of a, yeah, we know. And then we're not going to talk about it. You know, so, you know, basically, we don't know what to say at this point was kind of the reception that I got. And I felt like pathological ended before my recovery. And so I had already recovered for a number of, been recovered for a number of years. And I just felt like it didn't tell that story. And my story of recovery might be like other people's. I had never heard of recovery. Not once did one clinician mention the word recovery to me in 25 years in the mental health system. So one of my diagnoses was anorexia. And I was told, that I would have it for the rest of my life. My parents were told I was going to die from it. I mean, that's what they were told. Now this, granted, this was the 1980s, so, you know, grain of salt, but, and then, you know, eventually, you know, through my diagnoses, including um, generalized anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, um, then I was told I had ADHD, then I was told I had OCD, then I was told I had bipolar disorder. And once I received the bipolar diagnosis, I was basically told that I was going to die 10 years earlier than my life expectancy and would cycle in and out of, you know, manic and depressive episodes. And I would likely die by suicide. I would never hold a full-time job. I would, it was unlikely I would have a long-term romantic relationship. I mean, it was just so dire. Now looking back, there was no hope. I mean, absolutely none. So then I went to a psychiatrist who mentioned a patient of his who'd recovered. And once the word was mentioned, I was like, you can recover from mental illness? And not only did he say that, but he said she recovered and became an executive at Google. I have no interest in becoming an executive at Google, but that just seemed to me at the time the pinnacle of mental health, you know, just like ultra efficient. Now that's not at all what recovery is. And I learned that. Um, But so I wrote it really to tell the whole story because pathological ends where so many mental health memoirs end, you know, it ends with, you know, kind of on a, you know, an acceptance note, like a resignation note. Um, And I felt like, wait, there's this whole other part And I didn't want anyone else not to hear the word recovery. There's an excellent phrase you use in the book that's really stuck with me since. You you say, we've created a mutually causal situation. The psychiatric condition requires treatment that exacerbates it. And I think that so, so well defines the paradox of where people who do have struggles find themselves. And often that point, we sort of reduce it just to medication. And that's an important point. But for me right now, what I feel is it's the lack of hope. It's the absence of hope. It's the absence of anyone talking about recovery and not just clinicians, because I know some clinicians do, but the media. I mean, we never hear about it. The New York Times has never reported on someone who has recovered. Um, But, and then also publishers, you know, and, and why aren't they publishing more memoirs like this? Because certainly people have healed, although I didn't know that at the time. I also was very scared to tell my psychiatrist that I wanted to recover because I was scared he was going to say, oh, wait, you're a hopeless case. 
No, not you. Every other people, you know, the Google executive can do it, but she has otherworldly Google powers, you know, or something. Um, But I made so many mistakes. And so what I wanted to do, there's no right way to recover, but I certainly wanted to share my experience to kind of help other people avoid the mistakes that I made. The first part of the book covers the four mistakes, quote unquote, that I made. And um, the first one was believing that I had to be off medication. Um, and that is a tricky business and it's a you know controversial topic, obviously. But for me, I had been on them for so long that my body had become dependent on them and the withdrawal was just too severe and I couldn't do it. But I really thought, wait, if you're off medication, you've recovered, right? I mean, that made sense. You can't take a psychotropic medication if you're, you know, unless you are, have a mental illness. But the reality is we just have put people on these drugs long-term when they really weren't meant to be. And we have not talked about the dependency aspects of them enough. I mean, the way I see it is I'm still on medication, but I never adjust it. You know, it's been, it's just my baseline now. This is actually my natural state. And I've thought about going off them, but I'm very lucky. I have a low side effect profile, so I can stay on them. Um, but that was one mistake I made. The second one was believing I, did, I, I shouldn't be in therapy only crazy, and I mean that in the, that word in the most loving way, people go to therapy, which is hilarious and, and kind of says what's wrong with our mental health system, that we actually only help people when they're in a, you know, in a state of distress instead of preventive care. Um, that was one. But the other two are kind of interesting, which is that I thought I had to be in a romantic relationship <laughs> for some reason that, again, you know, the single woman <laughs> often is demonized like and kind of ostracized, right? And so the, there's sort of the myth of the crazy ex-girlfriend or the crazy girlfriend, and she has to be broken up with and returned to singledom <laughs> where she belongs. Because we don't know what mental illness is, we don't define mental health either. So I was going down all these paths trying to figure out what is mental health. Turns out you do not have to be in a romantic relationship. I get to save everyone from that. Um, I am not in one and I am ridiculously happy. So, um, But the other one, the fourth one was that I had to be very, very social. So many diagnoses really focus on, you know, whether or not you are really ultra social, in my opinion. You know, I'm a very solitary person. I love to be home reading and writing maybe streaming here and there and with my cats, like that's that's a rocking Saturday night for me. And so, you know, again, so, so much of recovery, which I didn't know, and I wish I'd known recovery looks different for every person. And it really is a journey or an experience of deciding what kind of life you want, given who you really are. And that was so important for me to learn. But I do want to save people from those four mistakes, if I can. Sarah, if it's okay, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about diagnosis for a bit. And, you know, now, now of course, you know, diagnosis is a little bit like medication, you know, that there are quite polarized views, uh, you know, about whether they're helpful or not. You know, some people say they're helped by having a diagnosis and it connects them to people with similar di- diagnoses, but uh, many others say they feel limited or defined by it. And I think you mentioned in the book that your first diagnosis was anorexia in eighth grade, and then you went through many more as time went on. And in the book, you say that each diagnosis became a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I wondered if we could talk about that. Definitely. And and I do think, you know, just to preface it, 
I always use the example of the autism community because they've done something so important and really kind of miraculous given, you know, our mental health system, but they've really embraced that diagnosis. They've championed each other with it. They've, you know, again, created the neurodiversity movement, which has said that it's really the world's job (laughs) to not just accept, but appreciate and, um, you know, appreciate the way that they see the world, hear the world, interact with the world, all of that. And, And that's remarkable. And I feel like in many ways, diagnoses wouldn't be a problem if there was an upside. (laughs) You know, you're never told, yes, you have major depressive disorder. And, you know, I think that for me, what I did was because I received my first diagnosis so young um, that, and something was wrong. My parents were divorcing. I was going to a new high school. I was terrified and incredibly sad. And I had a terrible stomach ache. I was not not eating. I couldn't eat. I didn't want to eat. Um, And what I didn't know at the time, because I never learned to process emotions or identify them, was that was sadness and fear, basically. And it still manifests in my body that way. But because I didn't know that, and because I had a pediatrician diagnose me, who basically looked at me, looked at the scale, heard that I wasn't eating and said she has anorexia, even though I didn't have three of the key characteristics, which are, you know, counting calories, uh, weighing yourself obsessively and believing you're fat. I didn't have any of those. Um, so, but because it was, I was, it was so young, I really started to equate emotions primarily negative emotions with diagnosis. And so I never learned the human experience. I feel anxiety every day. <laughs> I'm recovered and I, you know, I have panic attacks. I, you know, that is part of my human experience. Now, I was very ill and there is such a thing in my mind as mental illness and again, that's controversial as well. A lot of people don't believe you can recover because there is no such thing. I do not. I mean, I there's no question that I was ill. Um, but once I started to associate something doesn't feel good, this is really, you know, or, or even going into crisis with a diagnosis, um, that became my go-to. And, and it was always negative. Again, it was, there was no positive aspect of it. And like you said, I think some people feel relief. They feel connected to people. I did not have that experience. So, Sarah, you know, I, I wondered how knowing all that you do now, and, you know, you've you got two books that are crammed full of references to many, many studies that show that, you know, diagnoses largely are tools for professionals rather than things that we should kind of identify with. I wonder if, looking back now, do you feel bitter about those experiences and about being labeled that way, or do you see it part of the journey? You know, how, how, how do you kind of mentally process that now? As I said, I was very angry at first. And I think that um, Pathological is a saucy book. (laughs) It's got a little, the New York Times hailed it as a fiery manifesto of a memoir. So Cured is a very different book in that there is my story, but I also tell the history of the recovery movement, which I had never heard. And I want other people to know that we have been recovering from mental illness for at least two centuries, if not longer. Um, And that really needs to be out there and really talked about more. 
And then the third strand is I give people the tools that I use. Now, it's not medical advice, but the techniques and tools, as you said, um, that I used to that helped my recovery. They didn't, you know, lead to it. But I guess now what I feel is there's really no there's no upside to me being angry at the mental health system at this point. The upside is me changing it. That's, that's the upside. And I do feel like this is my purpose and cured. The memoir is, it is being serialized and I'll explain what that means, but it's available for free on Substack. So basically online right now, um, we will eventually sell it for a book like you know, just uh, my agent and I will do that. But right now I want to make sure as many people as possible get the information that's in it. And we can use that because it's free. We can use this as an opportunity to tell the media and publishers and the mental health system that recovery is important. So my goal is to get 30,000 subscribers by November. So everyone listening, tell all your friends, it's free to subscribe curedthememoir.com. Just put in your email address and you can read all available chapters of the book. And then I will also send you a new chapter every Saturday. You don't have to worry about catching up because I've written it so that each chapter stands alone and you get everything you need. So you never have to feel like you have to go catch up. If we believed in recovery, it would change everything. It would just be a domino effect because if there's recovery, then the whole biomedical model comes into question, <laughs> you know, where I was told you will have this for the rest of your life. This is because of this neurotransmitter or that synapse, you know, it, it's just, it's calling it into question. If we turn to the recovery model, which by the way, the U S government has been calling for us to do since 1999, I mean, I couldn't believe that when I learned that. So when the Surgeon General's report on mental health came out, they were already asking us to move away from the biomedical model and toward a recovery model that says, yes, people can recover from mental illness, even serious mental illness. In one of the most recent chapters in Cured, I talk about how mental illness is often likened to heart disease and diabetes. And that comes from a good place because it's trying to say mental illness is serious. We have to take it seriously. The problem is it's also letting people believe that it's lifelong. And one of my readers, because you can uh, interact with me online with the book, so you can make comments and, and, and exchange uh, you know, your story and my story. Um, but one thing uh, that she said is, oh, my father has diabetes and they just did a study and someone recovered from type 1 diabetes, which they said you cannot recover from. So even that <laughs> is starting to happen. Even the metaphors are breaking down. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I think it's really brave and bold to take the route that you have for publishing this and to allow people to read it for free. I think it's really a, a really novel and exciting way to do it. And, you know, I, I really did enjoy reading about the recovery movement because, again, it, it, it's not something I was really particularly familiar with, even though I've, I've been in this world for some time. And you write about the work of Judy Chamberlain and, and many others, and you write about some of the important studies that are really powerful, but they're buried in really obscure journals and very difficult to access. But it's amazing how people that were talking about recovery were almost seen as extremists just for daring to suggest there might be a path through this. And I, I learned the term, which is the clinician's illusion. 
And it refers to essentially psychiatrists, mental health professionals who say, no, recovery is impossible. My patients never recover. Well, that's, and the clinician's illusion is basically a way of saying, yes, your patients, quote unquote, never recover, but you only see the sick patients. So once we're well, many of us tend to leave the mental health system. So it's, you know, again, there's the clinician's illusion, but those are the people in power and they're seeing the worst cases. So of course they think no one recovers. It's simply not the case. Continuing with the theme of, um, you know, the recovery movement. In the book, you talk about your interest in peer recovery work. And I, I believe that you're also training as a peer support specialist. Is, it, is that right? And if so, could you tell us about what that entails? Yes, I became a certified peer recovery support specialist. And that was an incredible experience. And when after I'd recovered, and even while I was writing Cured, the one thing I worried about is, uh-oh, what if I relapse? What if I relapse? What will happen? Is there such a thing as relapse? I mean, no one really knows. But I did worry, could I get sick again? And when I did the certification, I knew I wouldn't because when that connection with other people and knowing that my purpose is to help others on their journey to recovery it just changed it for me. And I just knew, no, that will never happen. Now, I shouldn't say never. That doesn't mean I will not experience periods of depression or you know anxiety. As I said, that's part of the human experience. But um, that was an incredible journey just because I was on it with other people who had also experienced recovery in such different ways. And they were, you know, veterans who were doing the program through the VA and they were, you know, people of different races and sexualities and genders and everything. And that was wonderful to see. One of my facilitators, um, her name was Jean, and she was an amazing woman. But she had gone through foster care, had also struggled with addiction, and had been homeless. And I just thought, or without a home. And I thought, how could you, you know, I was just so in awe because I struggled to recover so much and with all the advantages that I had. And it was just so impressive to see all these people coming from so many different kind of backgrounds and life situations and making their way to recovery. It's just amazing. One of the areas of interest, I mean, you know, particularly here in the UK, but I'm sure also in the US as well, is, is the kind of power dynamic that exists between a doctor and a patient. You know, the, there, is, there is an assumed power there that they have some kind of hold or control over you. And it strikes me that peer support kind of deals with that issue a bit, doesn't it? Because you're talking to people at, at, at eye level, you know, who've had sometimes similar experiences who, you know, the conversation isn't just limited to half an hour in their their swanky office with their drug-sponsored pens or, you know, whatever else it might be. It's very much a, you know, human-to-human ongoing interaction, isn't it? And that's so powerful and important in its own right, isn't it? The most powerful part about it is that someone knows what you've, they don't know what you've gone through, but someone can say, this is what happened to me. And and the best thing I learned was um, peers never give advice, ever. And that's something very different (laughs) from what we get from other people. But we don't give advice. We just listen. And when appropriate, if asked, we might share an experience that we had. But there's so much respect for every person's 
individual experience matters the most. So every person's journey is going to be different. And I think that mental health professionals try to do that, I would think, and some are very successful at it. But often I felt like I was another patient. You know, here I am in the waiting room and I come in and I don't look that different from the person who was just sitting here. You know, the seat is still warm kind of a feel. And that's just not the case with peers. And then there are so many offshoots to it that I didn't know about in in terms of the recovery movement and what they've given us in addition to peers. So warm lines where if you are feeling you know, you do need to talk to someone, you are in a, having a mental health experience, you can call a warm line. And unlike 988 or 911, which we don't really recommend anyone call anymore, that they, there is no, for the most part, there's no risk that, um, you know, the police or um, an ambulance will be sent to your house unless you are clearly a danger to yourself or others. Um, so things like worm lines, they gave us those um, and they gave us, you know, just anything that has to do with beyond managing symptoms. <laughs> so basically anything that leads us to start talking about recovery and that a diagnosis is not necessarily a life sentence. The sense that I got really, Sarah, from reading both books, Pathological and Cured, was was how much healthier it would be for all of us, I think, if doctors were more willing to say, we just don't know what the issue is here, but we can work together on a journey of discovery. And your two books are, I think, or well, they were to me anyway, a journey of your discovery of really discovery about yourself and the way you felt about things, discovery about the evidence or lack of it behind many of the things you were told, and then discovery that actually cured for you meant a whole different array of areas in your life. It wasn't just medical. It wasn't just social. It wasn't just psychological. It was many things. So, you know, I I really love how the, the way that you bring all those threads together across the two books. And it's now that you said that, I was thinking, I wonder, you know, if if I had just had cured, pathological may never have happened. <laughs> I may never have had to write pathological. Um, but you're right. It's it's really, if we can just talk more about recovery. And one thing that comes up sometimes is people say it's cruel to give others, you know, some people false hope, quote unquote, false hope. It's cruel not to let people know that they, that recovery is possible. Now, it doesn't mean everyone will recover, but everyone must be given the chance. And I was not. And so for that, all I want to do is rectify the situation and really, you know, get this talked about on morning talk shows and on the news and really where it reaches people. I mean, one thing I learned as an author is that if you want to reach people, television is the way to do it. And those news shows that right now harping on, you know, how we're in a mental health crisis. There's nothing we can do. This is awful. Well, there is something we can do. (laughs) We can talk to especially young people about recovery. And the statistics are staggering. You know, 50% of adolescents never experience a second depressive episode again. I mean, that's half of them. That's And how many of them are being told that? Yeah, absolutely. And also the fact that, you know, recovery means different things to different people, doesn't it? So, you know, you you mentioned that, you know, you still have panic attacks, and I do. And, you know, I, I consider myself recovered from my problems, but if I have a panic attack, it's because I'm in a stressful situation. It's not because it's a recurrence of an illness, or I don't believe that for me anyway. So, you know, I think if we can encourage people to realize that, 
recovery isn't necessarily being symptom free, but recovery might be thinking about your life in a different way as, as sometimes having some challenges rather than being ill in some way and not able to cope. I almost don't like the word recover because it assumes you are going back to something. And I think a lot of people, what they do is they have a mental health experience or, you know, encounter that, and then they want to go back to the way they were. It's impossible. We can't time travel. You know, you will be changed by that experience. And one thing I really had to learn was the difference between personal recovery and clinical recovery. We used to only have clinical recovery. And that was when my psychiatrist tells me what recovery is, which means I have no more symptoms, which is impossible because (laughs) anxiety, depression, rumination, you know, all of those are part of the human experience. Someone could look at my life and say, she's really isolated and she might need, you know, I get, you know, I get very panicky in crowds. I avoid stores at all costs. (laughs) So someone could say she has social anxiety disorder. And again, I'm not minimizing, you know, when these conditions become acute, they are severe and can be disabling. I know what that's like. I know what it is like, you know, to experience that. At the same time, I think we are We've reached a point in our society where we're very judgmental of ourselves and our lives, and we want to be this Google executive ideal. <laughs> and and you know, really, it's really I had to come to terms with a lot of the things that are kind of unattractive <laughs> in a woman in America right now. You know that what it, you know, and again, this is very much culturally based, but what I'm supposed to look like and and desire and want versus what I do. And, you know, I don't even really like going out to dinner and I don't prefer not to. And, you know, again, those are the things we're sort of fed, especially through commercials and advertising, these ideals that I think are really um, can undermine a lot of people, especially those who have mental health conditions. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact is that, you know, that those kind of preferences for things, those dislikes for things have been around for thousands of years before some elderly men got together in a room and decided to make it a criteria for a mental illness, you know. And so if you think of it as just something I don't like doing rather than being told, well, because you don't like it, that's a mental illness. There's a massive gulf between those two states of thinking about the world, isn't there? There is. And I think a lot of it too a really important part of this was for me learning about my mind and how the mind works. I really, and again, I I present all of this in the book as well, but evolutionary psychiatry became fascinating to me. Psychiatry looks for what's wrong and how to fix it. And evolutionary psychiatry looks at what's wrong and why there might be a reason for it. And it's, it's was very fascinating to me to look at, for instance, Often when I would get anxious and revved up, which some saw as mania, and sometimes it did tip over into that, I would then experience a depression. Well, an evolutionary psychiatrist would say, that's your body returning to homeostasis. You've been up, so it has to come down. Um, And just, you know, even binge eating, that that is really how we're designed. I mean, the brain is designed to keep us alive, and that's it. It does not care if we're happy. (laughs) <laughs> really, you know, it doesn't care if we're succeeding in our job or, you know, but really it's just to perpetuate the species. And so it's very um, mercenary. But the other thing I learned was that it's always looking for what's wrong. It's always looking out for danger. And it is essentially trying to 
find out what's wrong and keep us alive. And so what I used to see as a problem with my mind, because I was so negative or I was always um, worrying about everything and I was always so anxious, it's not a problem. That's my brain doing its job, actually. (laughs) So once I stopped seeing it as a problem and seeing it as a bad thing necessarily, that really changed things. And then being able to process emotions I don't know if process is quite the right word, but to allow for uncomfortable emotions more than I ever did um, really helped too. And I talk about that in the book as well. Sarah, was there anything that we haven't covered about the book that you really would like to share? Just that, you know, again, I interviewed a lot of people, did a lot of research. And one thing that's so amazing about being able to offer it for free online is that it's interactive. And so what I'm able to do now is I give, you can go through and read the chapters, but I also have resources for mental health recovery. Um, So warm lines and emergency numbers. I have little bits that I send out every Thursday about say nutritional psychiatry. You know, again, these resources that people can get. I also have on there interviews with mental health professionals. Um, So I have Larry Davidson, who is with the Office of Recovery at SAMHSA and the Program on Recovery at Yale and others. So the other thing I feature are stories of recovery from other people. I didn't want this just to be my story. And so you can go on there and read about amazing people who come from all different, you know, sort of walks of life. The other thing that I just did was I recorded the audio of the whole thing. So if you are a fan of audiobooks, which I am a huge fan, um, I did record that. So all of them have audio. Most of the interviews do as well. Um, so you can find those on there too. So I hope everyone will visit and again, help me send that message to psychiatry, all mental health professionals, and especially the media and publishers that we really do want to learn more about mental health recovery. We want more research into it, not just the biomedical model. And I think what's interesting too is that same facilitator that I mentioned in my um, certified peer recovery specialist training, Jean, she said, the biomedical model saved my life and the recovery model gave me back my life. Things get so extreme in psychiatry. I am not a psychiatrist. I am not a researcher, so I don't have the answers to that. But as a patient, as an ex-patient now, as someone who has recovered, all I know is that we really need to give people a future. Because for me, suicidality was all about not feeling I had a future. And so that's the extreme, you know, that we get to. And that's what's most important. So please do subscribe. As I said, it's free. And um, I hope that we can just change this mental health system. Could you just remind us of the web address again, Sarah? CuredTheMemoir.com. And please do tell others to subscribe. I hope this goes viral. (laughs) Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. You know, I have to say that I I really enjoyed reading Cured. It describes some really intense and painful experiences that you endured, but it's ultimately so hopeful for people to read that mental health recovery is not only possible. According to many people, it's, it's probable, actually. Yeah. And one thing I do provide on there as well are statistics that should be readily available online that I had to dig through. But the statistics of recovery, which are astonishing. You know, when I was 12, someone should have said to my parents and to me, there's a 62% recovery rate. 
I mean, what if you went into a physical doctor's office and you received a diagnosis and then they couldn't, they just never talked about you healing (laughs) ever. You know, that's where we need to go, where every, I hope every conversation about mental health includes the word recovery, every appointment, every physician's visit, that that word is mentioned and recovery rates are mentioned. Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I just want to thank Sarah so much for joining me today. As a reminder, you can find the serialization of Cured at the website curedthememoir.com. Alongside this are resources, audio interviews, and personal stories of recovery. So thank you as always for listening. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. For more news, views, and updates, visit maddenamerica.com.